Imagine a young man sitting outside by himself, cross-legged in a bed of mocha-colored mulch, and around him is a garden. Lush greens, it's a late spring day, uh, and, and among all of the green leaves and the new growth are little explosions of color. Imagine like a burnt red and burnt orange, daylilies, imagine pink and white, cotton candy colored flowers. Behind him is an almost peach colored brick wall of a garage to his childhood home. And he's sitting there cross-legged writing with a pen in his hand, a leather-bound journal, he is writing. And over the course of maybe minutes, but what feels like hours, he writes as much as he can recall, as much as he can remember. He is seeking, he is storying memories, and trying to understand who he really is. The memories that he's drawing from are everything from his childhood, his upbringing, the forces that he senses have have made him who he knows himself to be. He thinks about himself as a part of a generation. In this case, Generation Y, or what would come to be known more today as the Millennial Generation. He thinks about his parents, his family, his ancestry, being of European, specifically Irish and Italian descent, a fourth generation uh, American of immigrants across all four of his grandparents and great-grandparents' descent. He's thinking about major events in life that have shaped how he sees the world, specifically events like September 11th, 2001, when he was 15 years old and was watching the mass destruction, not in person, but from his high school library's grainy, rabbit-eared television set live as the towers fell and when the internet stopped working and thought that the world as he knew it might be coming to an end. This young man, I'm sure you could probably guess by now, it's actually not a guest that we're having on our show today. It's it's me. From the New Story Company, this is The New Story Is, a podcast that explores the stories, perceptions, and ideas that have come to shape the world today as we know it. Along the way, we speak to talented guests who are championing the new stories that may shape our collective future for the good. I'm Dave Ursillo. This is the image that I have. This is the story that I recall, that I would call my introduction to story and to the autobiographical self as a construct long before I had the language or understanding long before I understood what I was doing. I, this was not a conscious impulse. This was, a, this was an act of desperation. Me sitting 
alone in a garden uh, at my my childhood house where I was living at the time at the age of 23 uh, with my parents uh, somewhere in the house behind me. And I was sitting there retreating to nature as I oftentimes did and still do with a pen and with paper and putting pen to paper, accessing a part of myself that I only really knew how to access in that act of, of writing, of giving voice to a quiet, sometimes silenced part of self that felt true. And over the course of, like I said, minutes, hours, days, and weeks during this pivotal time in my life of my early 20s, a period known by um, developmental psychologists in the study of human growth and development to be instrumental for really understanding oneself and one's self-identity for perhaps the first time in young adulthood, uh, or what is sometimes called later adolescence in developmental terms. I was desperate to know who I was. And the only way that I could try to figure out who I was, having just left uh, a very early but promising career path behind, I, the year before, was an intern at the White House Council on Environmental Quality in the summer of 2008. I had a job interview in the West Wing of the White House, which, of course, I, I did not get, being uh, extraordinarily underqualified, uh, but just honored and happy to be there and to have a cool experience of sitting in the lower level of the West Wing and talking to some very impressive people. I had moved back to Rhode Island amidst the turmoil of the Great Recession, which started in the summer of 2008 and transitioned in, into uh, 2009. and took a job with a state office holder who I was told would be the favorite in a gubernatorial race about 18 months later to run for governor and probably become governor and have eyes on maybe Washington, D.C. Um, in the years after that. And I, I left that job and I left that career path because really it's all that I'd ever known. From a very young age, I was subject to so many incredible privileges and upbringing that I failed to really understand for a very long time was so privileged socioeconomically, um, not to mention the privileged identities that I hold being a white male, someone who gender identifies as a man, was born biologically male, who is cisgendered, um, who is heterosexual, uh, who has uh, no uh, disabilities, um, came from a good family, a loving family, uh, suffered very little, wanted for nothing, had a very uh, accomplished white-collar father, small business owner, and attorney, a mother who was ex exceptional at raising children, uh, so loving and kind and a great cook, had so much. And part of my, my privileges, along with my, my siblings, uh, were educational privileges and going to private school my entire life, a college preparatory school near where I live now. And being a college preparatory school, the idea being the eye, your eyes were always fixed on the goal of getting into college. 
But it wasn't just getting into college. It was also getting through college, excelling in college, and excelling in career from every moment thereafter. And I don't say that to say that I experienced any pressure to be anything, to become anything in my career. It was quite the opposite. There's stories from my father about uh, his parents giving him two choices of what he could choose to be in his career, a doctor or an attorney, uh, for reasons that I won't get into right now. He chose attorney, and he and he thus became one. But I, I, I feel very sincerely that my father, in his experience of being a parent, wanted to undo that, that, uh, that karma of his parents giving him basically an ultimatum. And my father, with, with me, with my younger sister, my younger brother, told us as a whole generation of parents um, who had a similar socioeconomic and privileged experience, I think, in the United States and in, in Western nations uh, akin to ours, said to their kids, to Generation Y, or the millennial generation, you can be whatever you want to be. There is no ceiling. There is no limit. And why wouldn't we think so? Growing up in the uh, late 80s, early 90s, into the mid-90s, this golden age of the American economy, American hegemony, the downfall of the Soviet Union, uh, democracy had won, capitalism had won, America had won after a 60-ish year Cold War, the threat of nuclear destruction every day and over the course of some days, weeks, and years, feeling extremely tense and like the United States wouldn't win in this standoff against the Soviet Union, two nuclear powers. One mistake from one person at one moment in time could have spelled the literal destruction of the entire world and human civilization as we know it. And so here we were in the 90s, um, being of all those different privileges, being in an exceptional moment in history where it felt like there was no ceiling. And we were, as some political scientists called it at the time, at the end of history, that we had reached the end goal. And so there's me. And maybe there's you, if you are of a similar age to me, putting your sights on every and any possibility of what you could do in your career in a society in which career is held as the utmost expression of self in so many ways. By the time that I graduated college, I had found myself on a career path of politics and public service that mildly traumatic experience that I um, had in watching 9-11 and feeling the fallout as I did. It was a life-changing experience at the age of 15. Um, it activated me politically, socially, and globally in, in mind. It antagonized, um, it antagonized a lot of defensive, aggressive um reactions to feeling under threat, by which I mean as a, as a young man, um, I identified very conservatively, very hawkishly, um, being, I believe, so unaware of my many privileges in life and still believing in the 
great myths and misconceptions around what it is to be American. Um, the expression, the stories of total equality connected to the presumption that total equality necessarily exists because it has been so said. And so I found myself on this career path of leadership, of public service, of, of seeking politics and government and life and career in government as an outlet that I thought would be one of meaning and purpose, that would fulfill the promise that I had uh, essentially made by nature of uh, agreeing with my educational privileges and going to college and getting through college. I was constantly seeking. I was constantly seeking to validate um, a sense of guilt and shame, which I didn't have the language for at the time. But what validation I was looking for was I wanted to do right on what I knew was or sensed was my responsibility as someone who had been given so much. As a, as a kid, it's probably no surprise that I drifted into a love of superhero stories. Spider-Man was one of my favorite superhero stories, and I loved in the Spider-Man cartoon. I was never much of a comic book reader, but the cartoons of the 90s uh, really spoke to me, and, and Spider-Man in particular is also X-Men. There was G.I. Joe, I, which I was obsessed with when I was a kid. Um, good, good jingoistic um, military... Uh, military loving media to make a children make children think that uh war is glorious um i also love the teenage mutant ninja turtles which made me more deeply appreciate my uh, ancestral love of pizza um a lot less um nefarious uh was uh, the teenage mutant ninja turtles i think compared to gi joe looking back on it but Spider-Man and the Spider-Man cartoon, Stan Lee's Spider-Man, um, the infamous saying, with great power comes great responsibility. And this lesson that Spider-Man, Peter Parker, learns um, from making a grave mistake that ultimately indirectly causes the death of his, you know, one of his, his mentors, his uncle, uh, his uncle Ben, who was like a father to him, that sentiment stuck with me. With great power comes great responsibility. At a young age, I was recognizing that I was in possession of power, although I wouldn't have called it at the time political power or economic power or power by way of the privileged position that I turned out to be in socioeconomically and racially and beyond in, in this world in which we live today. I understood the power to be in the opportunities that I was given. And the longer that I went uh, growing up, I recognized the extent of those privileges as something that, that could be called power. Um, and not power in the sense of, of holding power over people, but understanding that there's perhaps a gift here. And that the gifts that I possess, not only external, but felt internal too, probably just by nature of, I don't know, some good genetics, um, having an exceptional private school education where I got a lot of attention and had my, my um, awareness and sense of self really nurtured, um, and, and my mental faculties and my emotional faculties really nurtured as well. 
With great power comes great responsibility, and so 9-11 happens, and I go through a series of explorations, um, exploring identities and potential career paths in the military, the G.I. Joe lover in me coming out. Um, I spent a year in Army ROTC, the Reserve Officer Training Corps program, my freshman year of college. I won an award during that year for exceptional willingness to serve his uh, program in his country. I don't really remember. It was a nice little badge. Um, I quit the program thereafter because military life I, I knew was not for me. I became a co-editor-in-chief of my student newspaper at the College of the Holy Cross, where I went to school, um, exploring journalism and for the first time exploring writing uh, and persuasion as a mode of self-expression, but also a potential career path. And I ended up in a number of different internships and jobs in government on state, the state level, and then ultimately on the federal level, moved to Washington, D.C. for that White House internship when I was 22, and figured that a long, successful career in public service awaited me. But there were feelings, there were doubts, there were tremendous concerns about not only what I was doing, but who was I? Who was I? And this had been the great conundrum, the great paradox of my entire life, of feeling throughout my young adulthood, those teenage years through this early adulthood or later adolescence in my early 20s, like I just simply did not really know myself. And perhaps how could I? How could any of us, really? Our brains are still developing through the age of, I think, 24, 25, 26, our cognitive abilities are still undergoing development over these years. And so we're expected to make, as you know, those of us who are privileged um, do, expected to make lifelong decisions based on a really fledgling sense of self. And I just couldn't really remedy that. I couldn't remedy making lifelong, what felt like lifelong decisions. Uh, without knowing myself and without feeling certain about what I was choosing and why. I experienced some mild depression. I sought out a doctor um, who was probably not qualified to diagnose uh, depression or anxiety, but did. And I was just happy to have a label. I was happy to have the validation um, to validate how I was feeling, which felt terrible. And uh, very disconnected from myself and very devoid of joy. Um, I don't know if I was uh, clinically depressed. Um, I guess it is besides the point, but this is a part of the story. Um, was identifying with something that felt like it was a physical manifestation, an expression of a deeper inner avoidance or turmoil or doubt. And so I quit that job and I left that career and I left a lot of those expectations that I had been walking in, the shoes that I had been walking in my whole life behind. And so here I find myself, it's a late spring day, surrounded by the early spring, or, or I should say late spring, early summer flowers, listening to the birds <clears throat> being uh, drenched in sunlight in southern New England where I grew up and found myself living once again, and as I still live today having made time for Boston and New York City and Washington, D.C., and traveling to 
what is that, 29 countries now, I think, that I've visited throughout my life. And I put pen to paper, and I began to rewrite the story of my autobiographical self. The act of putting pen to paper and describing who I thought I was was exceptionally powerful. But it's only become more and more powerful the further I get away from that period of my life of now nearly, well, over 13 years later. The reason it's become more powerful the further I get away from it is because I am impressed not in an egotistical or arrogant way. I'm not I wasn't I'm not impressed with my younger self for having done something special because he knew what he was doing. It's it's the opposite. I'm impressed by the fact that something impulsively, compulsively, instinctually, unconsciously drew me to a practice, an expression largely out of desperation to fulfill something so fundamental as to know oneself. By which I mean, I did not sit down one day and say, I'm going to rewrite the story of my life as I know it. I'm going to sit and with pen and paper, literally and figuratively, revise, edit my self-conception. I'm going to relitigate my memories. I'm going to... Um, uh, apply my own editorial lens and choice and understanding to reconstitute who I know myself to be so that moving forward, I'll have more self-knowledge and figure out what I need to do with my life. It wasn't that. I felt terrible. I got some pen and paper. I went outside to be alone and to feel the nurturance of nature and sought some self-connection. And in so doing, discovered a practice, discovered something that is human, fundamentally human. Not necessarily the, the act of, of storying the self or understanding, connecting with, accessing this, what we call the autobiographical self through writing, but through accessing story as a means of Meaning-making, because that's what stories are. That's what stories do. There are many different forms and kinds of stories, and the word story almost is uh, tries to do too much. Not that the word is itself a thing, but you get my point. It's kind of an umbrella term. Story refers to um, media. It refers to stories like Spider-Man, like G.I. Joe, like the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Story refers to pop culture, storytelling, Star Wars and Game of Thrones and Lord of the Rings. Story refers to how we construct and communicate understanding with one another. When I teach a workshop or speak on a stage, which is, it's been a while, um, thanks COVID, um, or used to teach yoga classes years ago, I would say that you know the, the, the dog ate my homework. That was a story, not a very good one, not a very, you know, 2022 technologically 
appropriate story. Um, I don't know if dogs eat homework anymore. Kids out there, you'll have to let me know. But the dog ate my homework. That was a story that we used to to say, right? It was uh, uh, how why we're late for work because there's traffic. The meaning that we make of events or circumstances that unfold in our lives, the choice that we assert, how we construct and communicate the context of what happens is storytelling. It's not storytelling in a literary sense. It's not storytelling in a pop culture sense. It's not storytelling in a um, high science fiction fantasy um, story, but it's, it's story. When we construct meaning, when we communicate understanding, when we try to create context of the otherwise random and uncontrollable events and circumstances and happenings and beliefs and ideas and feelings, that's storying. That's, that's the verb, storying, to story, to make meaning, to construct understanding. And that's what I instinctively did all those years ago, just like you, I'm sure, have as well, dear listener. We are always constructing our own meaning. Our own meaning is not the only meaning that matters. We construct meaning in conjunction with, in association with others, our loved ones, our communities, our states, towns, our countries, and beyond. But we are always making meaning at this instinctive level. And... All these years later, I think back to that impulse that, you know, I think Carl Jung would probably call it something that is like fundamental. The the impulse, the urge, the instinct to construct meaning, especially if we've never done it before. This scene that I've painted for you, um, this story that I've been telling you, was my real first introduction to the power, to the art, to the significance of storytelling. I came from a lineage of storytellers in a lot of ways. The stories of my Italian ancestry in particular were what lived on and still live on most prominently today. The stories of my Irish ancestry, unfortunately lost to to death, to... Um, perhaps to overgeneralize or stereotype a, a discomfort around expressing uh, emotion, um, thinking to you know past generations and just the, I never had had the opportunity to learn uh, stories that were passed that could be passed on from my maternal grandfather who passed away when I was twelve. Um, conversely, on the Italian side of my family, the stories live on. Um, around the dinner table. They live on through the food. They live on through um, the area in which I live that is uh, come, is also very, very Italian, of, of Italian descent, and lives on in the culture um, in a lot of ways. And the Irish side does too, but I just don't have the connection to that, unfortunately. I, I, hope, to, I hope to reconnect to it more. 
Um, I love the Irish and I love Ireland, but um, the culture of my family didn't get passed on through the stories and the ways that um, it did with the Italian side. And I think honestly, a lot of that has to do with food and the story that the stories that come through food. Where was I going with that? Now I'm just hungry. Right. So what I was saying is this introduction that I had to storytelling um, is why, in fact, we're here. All these years later, 13 years on, we are, you and I, conversing now. It's a one-sided conversation. I wish it was a, it was a two-way conversation, but we're talking here on the New Stories podcast on what I understand you clearly know by now, these nearly 30 minutes into this episode, to be a solo pod or a solo podcast. Uh, see what I did there? That abbreviation, it's, I know I'm pretty up on the lingo. This is a bit of a different episode. It's just me talking with you and me um, wanting to introduce myself more to you than I have on this podcast in a long time. Over the course of the last seven months, we've been publishing new episodes under this title, The New Story Is. And we've welcomed listeners like you from all over the world. So big shout out and a huge thank you to our listeners in the United States. Also from Denmark, the United Kingdom, Singapore, the Czech Republic, Canada, India, Turkey, Belgium, Finland, Australia, Germany, Mexico, the Philippines, Spain, Costa Rica, Italy, Brazil, the Dominican Republic, El Salvador, Greece, the Netherlands, Poland, and Sweden. We've brought stories. Uh, we've brought interviews. We've brought thought candy, as I sometimes like to call it. Insights from experts, opinions based on lived experiences about what social cultural issues are ongoing in our world, what deserve attention, and what the new story may be, how we might change these stories, these experiences, these issues for the good. And over these seven months, it has dawned on me that I haven't really introduced myself to you. So dear listener, welcome, thank you, and please allow me to introduce myself as I have been already. My name is Dave Ursillo. In my heart of hearts, I call myself a writer for the reasons that you heard um, throughout this monologue so far. In times of need, in times of distress, and now more and more over the years, uh, proactively as in um, a resource or a practice in self-resourcing um, to access, to empower, to know myself, I write. And I, I sought a career for many years uh, exclusively as a writer, as an author. Um, now I find myself as a teacher of writing and creative self-expression and, and holistic self-expression. I work with a lot of professional helpers, so LMFTs, LMHCs, psychologists, clinical and otherwise, PhDs, uh, a lot of small business owners, self-employed creative entrepreneurs, those who have platforms, who are coaches, life coaches, business coaches, wellness coaches, 
uh, and have a platform through which they speak. They demonstrate thought leadership. I work with a lot of professionals who aren't necessarily creative, but have a demonstrable level of leadership, um, internal or in their expressed through their careers who are maybe changing career paths or starting a new business for themselves. And what I do as a writer, as a creative, as a creator, as a coach, and as a advocate and proponent of storytelling in all its forms is I help to shepherd, to guide, to support, to doula stories into the world. Sometimes being hands-on and helping to write or ghostwrite those stories, sometimes helping clients to uh, craft book proposals for their literary agents as they seek to publish their first books. I've turned more than two dozen, probably now close to three dozen clients into first-time authors, uh, having various roles throughout their creative processes. I work as a writing coach and help people to develop healthier and happier relationships to writing, which sustains their writing efforts over time. I'm also uh, presently studying as a graduate student for my holistic clinical mental health counseling degree as I pursue licensure and becoming a mental health counselor in the years to come. My life, my world, my work, and also my heart, um, love and are just completely fascinated with what moves us as humans, what motivates us, and what motivates the best in us. By nature of this work, of coming from a world like politics and studying political science, studying the social sciences, studying human behavior in mass and now more individually or an individual within systems, an individual within interpersonal dynamics, um, the macro and the micro of human behavior is what I've been fascinated with my whole life. Um, it should come as no surprise when you hear somebody like me describing a fascination, a compulsion, a, a desire, a need to know himself. By extension, we become you know teachers and learners of others as well. I have always been driven to understand what moves us and what motivates us as humans. And the good comes with the bad and the bad comes with the good. In recent years, especially over the last six years, six plus years, um, before the uh, Trump presidential election, um, seeing the writing on the wall, seeing how the culture and society were shifting and moving, seeing the, the wounds that have always been present in our society and in, in the American nation surface, become impossible to ignore. And along with it, my own examinations of my own many identities and experiences of privilege pushed me to go deeper into understanding the good and the bad of human behavior and experience. The new story is, as a podcast, exists as a natural progression and evolution to my journey as a person and professionally, and my desires, my intentions for the future of having great, meaningful, authentic conversations with people who are living what they believe and are trying to change the stories of our world for the good.
that's subjective. Uh, I apply editorial lens and responsibility for those stories uh, and having guests on, even if I don't agree with every story or every opinion. Being in this position as the host of this show, I also produce the show. I pay for all the software. This is a, a passion project in a lot of ways. It's also you know, a marketing and advertising tool for me as a professional and my business, the New Story Company. But um, I, I love conversation. I love conversing with people. I love asking questions, even though um, sometimes I'm on my game. And I feel like I'm really asking the right questions. And sometimes I feel like I'm stumbling over my words and trying to figure it out as I go. I'm, I'm learning. I'm doing my best NPR impressions um, every time I have an incredible guest on the show, as we so often do. But I seek, I hunger for this, these conversations, for this knowledge. I have become very skilled as a as a critic of um, assumptions and expectations and behaviors and stories um, in pop culture, in the news, in politics, and beyond. And I, I find myself applying this discerning lens to decode and understand and to critique, in many cases, the logical fallacies, the uh, incitements to reactivity, to violence, to ego, to anger that are so prominent in our shared culture today in ways that honestly sicken me um, and I find upsetting because it wasn't always like this. Maybe you don't remember a time when it wasn't like this, but it wasn't always like this. And as recently as when I quit my job and started a blog, DaveUrsillo.com, and carried some hope into an expression of hope of career as, a, as an aspiring author and, and as a writer, there was a lot more optimism there was a lot more faith in one another, not religious faith. There was faith in one another, which I think in a sense is religious, not denominational, but the faith that we have in one another is paramount. <laughs> um, human beings as social creatures, we do and always will rely on one another. There is no other way than together. And while many people have always throughout human history found ways to exploit and invert that necessity for their own gain, financial, political, and egotistical and otherwise, it remains an absolute truth which does not mean that we all come together, hold hands, sing kumbaya, and all of our problems go away. But faith in one another is essential, as hard as it can be, to maintain that faith. So in a lot of ways, these conversations are selfishly my seeking to bolster that faith 
in people as in myself. And that's one of the beautiful aspects of story that I want to leave you with, these these thoughts uh, regarding the importance and the power of story. We had on a guest, Eduardo Placer, earlier this summer, and his words stand out to me. He said that human beings are really not great at learning lessons. And he meant as a, as a species, as a whole, from like a, a big picture, meta-narrative perspective. Because if we were, then why is there so much progress and regression? Why is there so much push and pull? Um, as Yvon Hutchinson, another guest of ours over the late summer said, all these, these issues that we experience in society today, they are not as novel as we think they are. They are recurrent. And I wonder if Eduardo, not to speak for him, but I wonder if he would say that the issues are recurrent because we struggle as people to remember. If we struggle to remember the lessons of the past, to let the past inform our present, to act in such a way that the present and the future do not replicate the past that we no longer want or deserve. We need more stories. And I know that that sounds uh, maybe superficial, maybe cliche, because we live in a time of so much content and noise that it's, it's paralyzing, it's overwhelming how much attention-grabbing, attention-baiting um, content and stuff is bombarding us nonstop. To say we need more stories is like saying we need more TV shows. We need more artists, uh, you know, performers. We need more interruptions into our lives. Do we? Absolutely not. I think your retort would be as it would be mine when we think about the act of consuming and how our consumer culture has become one where our attention is the commodity. You can listen to a recent episode with the president and CEO of Consumer Reports, Marta Tolado, who was so kind to join us and, and explain the landscape from a much more informed and, uh, and poignant point of view than I can explain right here. What I mean when I say we need more stories is that there is never enough personal, interpersonal, authentic, true, heartfelt, faithful stories being told in the world. Of course, we don't need more superficial, egotistical, self-serving bullshit. Of course, we do not need more consumption in the form of mass media to subsume our days, our attention spans, our mindfulness, our happiness. We wonder why anxiety is the biggest pandemic, along with loneliness, another global pandemic that have been afflicting the human condition so severely over recent decades. We're living in a novel time. The tools that are in our pockets are exceptionally powerful and have broken the space-time continuum. It's like we're constantly living in the past, the present, and the future at all times. 
and like we're living in seven billion universes all at once. We as a species are still trying to understand how to use these tools. But what remains true, what will always remain true, is the instinct, the impulse, the inherent unconscious human desire to make meaning, to know the self, to connect with others, to see others in me, to see the self in you. We do it without choosing it. It is essential to our existence in a way that some might call fate or destiny that I would say only by choice and awareness is a gift and not what feels like a burden or a curse. I don't know in earnest if those are the only two options. If it's either gift or curse, if it's either power or burden, but for simplicity's sake, if you will, offer me the opportunity to break it, to, to oversimplify it and to make a dichotomy, which I'm not really into, as you probably well know by now. But if the human instinct, if the human impulse, like I did those years ago, sit down and find my way to a page with pen in hand to try to make some meaning of what felt at the time to me in my own limited point of view, my own individual experience, to be a burden, to be a curse, to be lost, to be without answers, without knowledge, and in some ways, a fear of maybe never getting out of that place, of feeling depressive, of feeling stuck, of feeling like I did not know who I was. Taking the pen, putting it to paper, and seeing my story emerge from my mind, through my hand, into physical form, taught me that I always had some element of power to change those words. Whether I burned the page, ripped it up, ate it, I didn't, or left it there to look at it like a mirror. When we take up the pen, literally or figuratively speaking, when we craft, reflect upon, unearth, inhabit, share stories, even if the instinct is unconscious, the consciousness, the conscious choice to source those stories, to share those stories, and to do all the things that I said a moment ago, seeing ourselves in one another seeing the others in us, seeing that we share more always than we are different, that differences are not a problem. That what is different between us, 
are valuable. Genetically, emotionally, spiritually, and otherwise. As a listener of this show, I ask you to take up the pen yourself. Literally or figuratively. In what ways you see fit as you see fit. I'm not asking you to be a writer. I'm not asking you to write a book. I'm not asking you to start a podcast. I'm not even asking you to keep listening. If you don't want to, you know by now how to continue to listen. I'd love to have you. I do this for you. But I trust you to make those decisions. But I'm asking you to remember, if this is the last thing that you hear, that the instinct, the impulse, the unconscious desire and need to story will always and forever live within you. It is what it is in many ways to be human. And I do think that when the power that we possess as meaning makers and as storytellers goes unrealized or unrespected or underappreciated, that we do find experiences that lead us to loneliness, to isolation, to anxiety, to anger, to fear, to fret, and what we would otherwise call a curse, a burden, a faded experience that leads us to something where we feel not ourselves, distant from one another, fearful of the future, absent from the present. To know the power that we possess, to embrace it as a gift, and in your own ways, on your own timeline, to embrace it, to make it conscious, to make it chosen, to be your story's teller, I think is a key to healing, to community. and to that faith of which I spoke in ourselves as in one another. Thank you for listening to this episode of The New Story Is. I look forward to future episodes with future guests, maybe with you. I hope you'll be along for the ride, and I hope that this episode has connected us a little bit more deeply. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to share my story with you. To share yours with me, you can email me, dave at daveursolo.com is the personal address. Hello at the new story is another way of getting in touch. You can always find me at daveursolo.com and at thenewstory.is. We can listen to our full back catalog of episodes, see what we're doing at the new story company, what we're creating and crafting and sharing, and much more. So until next time, story on. Bye-bye for now.